Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. On today's show, we have champion competitor, clinician, judge, author, Sandy Collier. She's been named the top 50 riders of all time in all disciplines. She's a member of the Cowgirl Hall of Fame and the NRCHA Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Hi, thank you, John. I understand that you're writing your autobiography, so we don't need to go back into all your history because I can't wait for that book to come out. But (laughs) I'm a little bit jealous in the sense that the research that I did for this show, you made a decision to have a life with horses very early on, and you committed to that. And and I think that that's probably contributed a lot to your success. Yes, I, I did commit to it. And, and by doing that, I sort of didn't leave myself any options. And when the going got tough, I just had to, you know, dig in and, and get tougher and make it work because I hadn't gone to college and I hadn't done a lot of things that people back then did. So it worked for me for sure. And you moved out to California many years ago, but... Uh... Did you have somebody that was helping you with the training? I, I worked on a ranch back then, and there there was a herd of quarter horses that I was tasked with taking care of, keeping them shod and sound and, and all of that. And back then, there really wasn't the um, trading of information and helping each other like there is today. Things were a lot different. It was a lot more insulated, and there just wasn't that sharing of knowledge as as readily as there is now. And so how did you develop your horsemanship philosophy from that? It was kind of the school of hard knocks for all of us. There weren't really books about, you know, training cow horses or reining horses. There certainly weren't clinics and DVDs. And and so I actually paid uh, Doug Ingersoll to give me lessons in the beginning and get me started. And then it was just a long series of what worked and what didn't work that helped me to develop into who I became. Doug was kind of uh, one of the foundation horse trainers, I would say, that you got your philosophy from. Were there others? I worked for Tom Shelley for a year, and and he contributed quite a bit. There was a fellow named Gerald O'Brien who used to come over and spend time with Hayden Upton, who's a horse chiropractor. Uh, and Gerald trained Liberty horses, and actually he was very influential in my, in my, you know, how I mentally approached training. He really contributed quite a bit to helping me understand how it, it's so much easier and better to have something become the horse's idea and have them volunteer it. That had never occurred to any of us back then, yeah. you know, to make what you wanted easy and what you didn't want difficult. That was That was just starting to come into the mainstream back then. Is it safe to say that back then it was a situation where you told the horse to do something and and forced them to do it? Pretty much. Pretty much it was my way or the highway for all of us. I mean, we just didn't know any better. And as we started to become more aware of, of options that we had in training horses, you know, everybody changed readily. But, you know, it wasn't until Tom Dorrance and Ray Hunt and those fellows came along that 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 even became up um, a possibility. And did you ever meet or train under Ray or Tom? 
I got to spend some time with Tom Dorrance and with Ray, but not a lot. And a friend of mine who ran a ranch that I worked out of for a while had spent quite a bit of time with Tom Dorrance. And that was, her name was Linda Dorado. And that's really where I started to understand that whole philosophy of training and started to adopt it and make it my own. And I'm kind of struggling here because I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this question, but was it difficult to evolve that philosophy of asking a horse in such a way that it it was kind of their their idea to give you the answer? I think it was difficult to evolve that way because we all had to evolve first in order to make something like that work. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And that's you can't just you can't just take somebody who's been used to, you know, just hammering a nail into a piece of wood and, and have them understand that it's possible for it to be done differently and 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 be able to evolve the mindset for it to to work differently. So we all had to evolve and then adopt and then make that whole way of training kind of our own. And and, uh, it was a very exciting time. I bet. And and I I bet you also had to to start studying the horse's body language in a in greater depth than it had ever been done before, because now you were looking for those cues that the horse was offering to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Those very, very subtle things. And I think where maybe being female in the beginning had been more difficult for me because I wasn't maybe as strong or as aggressive as, as some of the guys that were, you know, training cow horses back then. But, but because of that, it was easier for me, I think, to evolve into that where I did become, maybe it was easy for me to become more perceptive and to see those little cues and to be willing to not resort to muscle first and right you know it just it worked really well it worked really well for me to develop those skills instead of just you know relying on the old standard muscle and make it happen i think women are definitely more uh, empathetic horse trainers than than men are and then what got you into horse competitions well i'd always been pretty competitive i i played golf and tennis as a youngster and and competed and then when I was growing up in the three-day eventing world I competed and so when I got involved with with cow horses it was sort of a I guess that's what I just figured I mean that's always been sort of how you measure your progression you know towards becoming really good at something is to compete a lot of people don't care for competing and that's fine but it's it is a really good way to you know, to gauge how, how well you're learning something. And so it just became the natural thing for me to do. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've noticed. I've been doing some ranch riding shows the last couple of years, and it really puts a little uh, gauge on how well you are advancing in your horsemanship. Uh-huh. Exactly. And then along with, with Barbara Schulte, you guys have a business called Be Unstoppable. And you're a life coach and she's a performance coach. And walk me through uh, that combination of how you gals go about uh, handling your clinics for competition. We teamed up back in 2016. 
I always really admired Barbara because of her training in the mental skills. And I always felt like those were really, really important and something that we had not given a lot of attention to in the horse industry where it was pretty mainstream and say tennis and golf and some of the other sports that, that people were competing in. So she had graduated from the mental performance Institute in, in Florida and was just really using those skills in, in her cutting. And also she was a cutting horse trainer. And I felt like that really went hand in hand with my skill set of reined cow horses and judging and reining. And I thought, you know, there are a lot of people that are wanting to compete in the three events, the reining, the herd work and the fence work mm-hmm. that are interested in the mental skills. And so I thought it would be a really awesome combining of our, skill sets plus we've gotten to be pretty good friends (laughs) and so we evolved you know we started with a much different business plan than we actually have now but uh, we started giving three-day clinics and the first day is like a workshop type day where everyone sits down and and so no horses we talk about judging we talk about mental skills we watch videos and then The next day, we use those mental skills and we use those things that we talked about in terms of judging and increasing our score to to work on the the three events and people, you know, trade back and forth between our two groups. The amateur and non-pro, it's got to be really important as far as mental focus and concentration for them, because I noticed the first couple of times I went into the arena I came out and I wasn't really sure of how I did or what I did in there. That's got to be, that's got to play an important role in someone who is relatively new to showing. Is it more the horse? Is it more the, uh, the rider at that point than it is the horse? I'm not sure I know exactly what you're asking. Yeah. I'm not sure I am either. It's just, I find that, at a, at a horse show, a lot of times the the focus is on the horse, but really it's the rider's attitude between the training arena and the show arena that can affect the horse's performance more than anything. Oh, so, I got you. Does yep. that make sense? I don't know. If Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. Otherwise, how would, say, a trainer be able to get far more performance from a horse than, say, its owner might or whatever? I mean, it has a lot to, yes, it has a lot to do with the with the rider and with their mindset and their skill set and their ability to make those quick decisions in the moment. I try to attend one or two clinics every year to to, to learn something about horsemanship, no matter who it's from, I think you can get a lot of good information from from somebody. And uh, I noticed that uh, Andrea Farpani is having his Along for the Ride symposium in Las Vegas, and he's going to have Nick Dowers and uh, Sean Flaherty there. And what can the average person kind of draw? What, what should you expect to draw from when you go to a clinic, any clinic, but... I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but um, maybe you can give us some thoughts on what a rider should expect to draw from something like that. Well, I am familiar with that clinic, and actually Barb and I plan to go to it. Um, right. 
Yeah, I, I was very excited when I saw that because those are three people that I really highly admire in the horse world. And I can't really tell you what I'm expecting to get out of it. It's a different format where, you know, they're going to be riding and, and we won't be, but we'll be listening. Mm -hmm. And so I think that depending on how focused you can stay and what your level of expertise is when you go will have a lot to do with how much you get out of it. But I think that those three guys are so good in their field, and, I, and I'm expecting that they will have a very good grasp of how to transmit knowledge. And so I'm, I'm really excited about gleaning a lot of information. And perhaps it'll just kind of bring us up to date on the stuff that they've all kind of collectively learned together about horsemanship. Yes. Very much like from going back to that earlier part of the conversation where you kind of forced the horse to do it to looking at other ways. Now we're at almost another level of horsemanship with these guys. Oh, absolutely. I, I judged the road to the horse a few years ago when Nick Dowers won it. And he, he just is such a master. The, the talk about the nuance and the, seeing the little teeny bits of try and rewarding them and knowing just how much he could push. And he made every single second count and matter and be educational without overdoing it with the, with the two horses that, that he was competing on. And it was just, it was like watching, it was watching, like watching an artist. I mean, wow. he was just that good. And the amazing thing was that he could talk about it really articulately and, and share all of that with us because so much of what he saw and responded to probably went over way over 90% of the people's heads there. Yeah. So he kind of talked along and it was just, Oh goodness. It was very impressive. And do you think that comes from just the number of horses he's worked with? Well, his timing and expertise certainly has a lot to do with the number of horses that he's worked with, but I think that he just, some people just have it and he's just got it Yeah. as does Andrea and, and, you know, and Sean, it, it just in their own ways, you know, I know it's, it's amazing to watch those guys that have such impeccable timing on the, and the horse seems to pick up on it so much faster when your timing is better. And I think yeah. as a, recreational rider that's one of the the things that i struggle with quite a bit is trying to work on that timing plus you know only have one horse so it's not like you're working with 10 horses a day or something like that so i think it becomes a little bit more difficult i i would agree and i i think that without having someone there to help you learn about when you know when to release and what to reward it would be kind of hit or miss too, because so much of it is dependent on horses learn from the release of pressure, not the application of it. So, so much of their reward comes from the moment that you stop asking and, and just let them sit and absorb. And so, you know, if you miss those moments, you, you, you miss those moments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if there's, you don't there's... know somebody, they're going, whoop, whoop, you missed it right there, right there, you know. You can kind of fumble around for a long time. That's that's your was your training opportunity, and it was like a bus. You you just have to wait around for yeah, the next one. Yeah, you rode right one. through it, or you did what you know. You just yeah. 
Uh, one of the other things that I kind of struggle with is is how the quantity of pressure. And uh, I was listening to your your podcast that was with Andrea last year. I think it was September 2020. I'm not positive. But in it, you guys were talking about uh, the horse that you took to the snaffle bit. I think it was Miss Ray. Miss Ray. Mm-hmm. And, and you were you had found this horse uh, up at Doug Williamson's place up in Tahone. That's uh-huh. real near us. And you had been working on the training and everything was going. You were pretty good. And you took him over to Les Vote. And, and Les asked to uh, go down the fence with this horse. And you said that Les got into her pretty good making the turn on the cow, if I, rem- if I remember the conversation right. And I just, yep. and you said after that, she was, she was on top of things as far as down the fence. And it made me wonder as I was listening to that conversation, if Les hadn't have done that, do you, I, I mean, you know, I know, you're not a fortune teller, but do you think that it, he, she would have gone on and won that? Uh, you know, who knows? I just know that he tightened her up because his timing was just exquisite. And mine at that stage of the game was not. Yeah. So, but I, you know, in, in her, it's awfully hard to say, but she, you know, she got, she, she got, she won it because of her rain work and her herd work. Uh, The fence work, you know, the cattle that year were real soft and we were all kind of under the same handicap. And I think I marked a 218 where I was like a 20, 21, 22 on the other two events. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. I, I couldn't tell you. The answer to that question is probably not as important as the takeaway from that event in applying the right amount of pressure at the right time. Did that help you out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I think that's probably the ultimate thing is to know. And and how do you gauge that? Can you offer us any suggestions on how you might gauge how much pressure to put on a horse at any given time? Or is it you have to be there type of situation. Yeah, you have to be there and you have to be open to those really subtle cues because every horse is different and every situation is different. And that's a soft skill, um, meaning that it's never really the same twice, be it on a horse, on different horses and in different maneuvers. It's, it's that learning. It's the rewarding, the try, the thought, and not necessarily the actual perfect execution. You know, you're rewarding the try. You're you're increasing their confidence and creating desire in them to try to strive for that reward. And that's what's exciting to me. It's not the, you know, whether I can make them do it or not. It's a rewarding the try? Yeah, it's wanting to create the desire in them okay. to want to perform and not perform because they have to perform. And I think that horses that that perform because they want to always look better and they last longer than ones that you know we make do what right. we want and you mentioned that you you spent some time as a judge judging had to have helped your career quite a bit as as far as horsemanship goes getting to sit in that chair watching all those great horsemen do good stuff well you know i've only really started judging a lot in this last several years and and i often think, gee, I wish I had done this sooner. It sure would have helped my showing. And I highly encourage 
anyone who's showing to not only go to the judges seminars, but to judge themselves, because it can really help you know how things look to someone sitting up there with pencil and how to really improve your score. And I was talking to Bill Inks, I judged the fraternity this year, and, and we were talking about how, you know, some of the guys just always mark good. And, and it's not because they get any kind of gift because, their their name is you know they are who they are it's because those guys actually do everything just better like they make use of of every oh gosh one of one of them i I won't mention any names but you know one of them got off to a a little bit of a rough start in the herd work and didn't have a good cut didn't have a very good cow and and so you know it was looking kind of grim boy and he marched right in there and and made a beautiful credit cut and you know quit his cow right in the middle of the arena and turned right around went back in credit cut again finished the run working yeah I mean just all those little things and and he ended up I want to say with like a 216 which is he he just made use of, of every second that he had even though he got off to a rough start he he salvaged as much as he, you know, as he possibly could, where somebody else might not have been willing to be that aggressive and that precise and understand what it takes to, to elevate their score. So right. yeah. they just happen to make those right decisions and do those right things that contribute to a good score, regardless of the circumstances. And so they end up scoring higher regularly, you know, consistently. And I noticed in your in your clinics with Barbara Schultz, one of the days is spent as a judge's perspective. So you kind of learn from what the judges are looking for. Right. That's our first day, our workshop day, and it's only part part of the day. But we sh- I show a, a lot of runs, like boxing runs. And what I found was really helpful was, you know, we start at like, what does a 65 run look like? The, just the boxing, not the regular part. And mm-hmm. then what is a 67 and a 69? And what do you have to do to up that two more points and two more points? What does a 74 look like? You know, and so you get to see like in, in two point increments, how how that score gets raised up. And it's it's interesting to watch because once one of the things like position and control, once you get more position and control, then things tend to look better. And then it tends to look like you're having more courage and a little bit higher degree of difficulty. And they all, all your scores go up. And so, you know, all of a sudden you can jump from just zeros all the way across to a 70 up to a 72 or a three, not, not too, you know, it's not too difficult to do. So that's kind of what we're trying to teach people. That's that's a great idea because I can tell a really good run and I can tell a really crappy run, but those in-between runs, you know, and that's really kind of where you can start to refine your game a little bit and, and start to increase the scores that you, that you get. So that's right. But you have to understand how, how to do that and you know, what it, what it needs to look like to do that. And yeah. And how much are you riding today? Um, I pretty much only ride, uh, for clinics, and then I still have some people whose ranches I go to and help them because I still love what I do. I just don't really have that much time to to ride a lot anymore. So, yeah, you keep yourself pretty busy. I do. I I do. I sell real estate, and that can be pretty time consuming, as can judging and traveling. You know, for clinics. Yeah, I always have four jobs. 
You look like you're in great shape. Do you do have a special fitness routine? I go to the gym every day if I can. I, I spin and do some muscle building, and I just got started playing pickleball, and I love it. <laughs> so now I go do my workout at the gym for an hour, and then I go over to the pickleball courts and play for an hour, and then I get about my day. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, I was a tennis yeah. uh, uh, amateur tennis tennis player and i see these guys playing pickleball and i wonder oh, that might that might be a little bit easier on these old bones of mine it's so much easier on the bones and as you get better you know you really don't have to run around the court too much which is nice yeah. um, but if you played tennis it's pretty it's pretty easy to pick up and it's just a lot of fun the people are are very nice and and welcoming and i've enjoyed it this has been a, a lot of fun, Sandy. Can't wait for your book to come out. And uh, I <laughs> have enjoyed watching your your videos on YouTube and uh, even uh, purchased some of your videos from your website. If people want to find out more about the, the help that you can offer, where shall we send them? Well, I still do my own clinics without Barbara. And mm -hmm. normally by this time of year, I have the list up on my website of, of the ones that I'm scheduled to do, though I'm always open to adding on. However, I'm, I'm a little bit behind this year. But also on my website, sandycollier.com, it will soon have up what Barb and I are doing. My website also has all my videos and my book and where to get them. And so I guess that's probably the best place is sandycollier.com. The cool. Be Unstoppable, what Barb and I do is at beunstoppable.us. Okay. And that's you know, that's where we have the ones that we're doing together. And she and I write articles every other week. They're, they're value articles that we post um, on our Facebook and, and on the website. And so, you know, we have a pretty good mailing list for those. And if people have missed those articles because they hadn't subscribed, they're all available on that Be Unstoppable us under our blog. And they're mm -hmm. all separated by category. So you could, you know, like just go listen or go read all the ones that Barb wrote about mental skills or all the ones I wrote about rain work or, you know, whatever, whatever your interest is. Horsemanship. Sounds great. Lots of good information there. There is. Yeah. This has been fun. I really appreciate the time that, that you've given me and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the Along for the Ride Symposium in Las Vegas in March. As do I. So please be sure to come and introduce yourself. Oh, I will. Oh, I think it's in February, though. It's in February. <laughs> the end of February. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely come by and say hi. Maybe we'll chat Wonderful. there. I, I look forward to it. Great. Thank you so much, Sandy. I appreciate All right. it. Bye-bye. That will do it for this episode. Sandy Collier is a wealth of information. Looking through her website, she has videos for everyone. From the basics of being a great horse owner, to reining essentials, to working with cattle. I'm often mystified and tongue-tied by these great trainers and how they're able to get so much out of their horses. Thanks, Sandy, for being so generous with your time and knowledge. I'll have links to Sandy's website in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. We'll be taking the podcast on the road to Las Vegas the last weekend in February, for the Along for the Ride Symposium with Andrea Fapani, Nick Dowers, and Sean Flarida. It looks like an awesome three days of learning from the greats. Renee and I are looking forward to connecting with friends and listeners. If you're interested, check out alongfortheride.pro or the link in the show notes. 
As always, if you'd like to share a story or experience about your horse or suggest a guest, let's hear it. Send an email to john at woepodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Woe Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.